I was 44 years old at the time. And um, I had just got my, my businesses, my life into a position where I could retire. So I was kind of getting everything ready for a really relaxed um, future, <laughs> doing, just doing what, whatever I wanted to do. And I made the decision to um, give it all up. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Torrin Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with the founder of Revolve Commercial, Mish Daniel. Growing up, she faced unimaginable challenges such as being held at gunpoint in front of her children or getting attacked and having her legs broken but despite this, still established multiple successful businesses and a property portfolio. Daniel has valuable business experience and knowledge. So, when she noticed a gap in the Australian commercial property market, she decided to launch Revolve Commercial. It's been quite a a long and interesting journey. Um, Revolve Commercial is a company that I established, um, let's say, about a year or two ago. However, getting to has been the the long story. So, um, we started out uh, in around about 2017 um, and have taken quite a couple of turns. And in um, January of last year, we decided to launch the label Revolve Commercial. And Revolve Commercial is essentially a um, commercial specialist buyer's agent. So we only do um, commercial properties nationwide. Um, and uh, we also help clients who cannot afford to buy commercial properties. Um, if they want to join me on some uplift deals and some joint ventures, I invite them to come along and, and, and join me as well um, so that they can get to learn how commercial property works and um, you know um, uh, enjoy the benefits. I think there are more and more people that are talking about commercial uh, and the benefits of commercial. I still feel as if there's massive fear um, around commercial and we'll probably talk about that later because um, uh, my years of experience in commercial when I, when I arrived in Australia, I kind of went, why are people doing this? In her everyday life, Daniel has a very busy schedule. Well, the first thing that I do when I wake up is drink half a liter of water, uh, stretch, prefer, and I exercise for at least anything between, I would say, um, 60 minutes to probably about three hours if I can. And I say between that because I either take the dog for a good stringent walk while I listen to very good property invest story podcasts <laughs> or others. <laughs> um, otherwise, I'm a keen, keen cyclist. So uh, I would do um, between, uh, I don't know, 30 and 45 Ks in the morning. And then come down, come back and um, have a look at uh, uh, what's to be done. Um, first thing in the morning is to touch base with my entire team to find out where they are and what we need to do um, and uh, respond to clients' emails and uh, all the urgencies. No matter how busy her day is, Daniel loves to go on a bike ride. 
Uh, I'm a I'm a, a little bit of uh, an all rounder. So essentially, I'm a mountain biker. So I've been doing mountain biking since I was a kid. Um, in fact, uh, I learned how to how to ride uh, on motocross, motorcycling. So my brothers were uh, all had motorcycles uh, in motocross, and uh, I learned how to ride with them at the age of about nine years old. So I started learning motorcycling before I learned cycling, and. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I built a couple of those as well, but we won't talk about those now. <laughs> um, and on arriving in, in um, Australia uh, eight years ago now, um, a friend of mine convinced me to get a road bike very reluctantly. Um, however, I managed to get a really beautiful carbon fiber, and we we do – now I have a range of bicycles, so we do um, a lot of uh, just um, sort of um, touring, um, quite a lot of touring, um, and then we do a lot of training on the road bikes, and and when they are brave enough to come um, off-road with me, we'll do mountain biking. <laughs> so it's a good spread. Anything with two wheels. Give me two wheels and I'm happy. Let's go back in time and take a look at Daniel's childhood. I grew up in South Africa and um, I was born in, in a place called Durban, which is on the East Coast. My parents moved up to Johannesburg is, is um, sort of where everything was happening at the time. And uh, it was a big, bustling, busy city. I hated the place and I vowed that the minute I'm finished school, I'm going to get out of there. I'm the youngest of five kids. But it, it was interesting being the last of five. Uh, my parents were very, very busy with my my older siblings, and they didn't really um, they didn't they, they kind of knew that I was there. But I was actually very quiet as a child, <laughs> very very introverted and and uh, very creative. So I used to I used to build quite a lot of stuff but I used to build my own little little toys and model bicycles I mean in those days you know you didn't have Kmart and, and everything that was made in plastic <laughs> and I had these these dreams that I wanted uh, a better lifestyle from a very young age and, and and I used to build these little houses out of cardboard and plastic and dull sticks magnificent houses and play there as a kid you know as a child, Daniel was influenced by her father and from an early age displayed that she was interested in property investment. My father started out as a, um, as a carpenter um, and so I spent quite a lot of time structuring and building with him um, and learning about load-bearing walls, learning about cantilevers, about roofs, about pitch roofs, flat roofs, mansard. Um, so I kind of I feel as if I went through an entire apprenticeship with him um, and on on Sundays we used to go our pastime because there wasn't very much to do in Johannesburg it was just a big dusty city so we used to go and have a look at show houses um, and I, was, I just loved it because he always used to say to me look beyond the walls um, and I'd say to him what do you mean dad he'd say well what can you do if you make an opening in this wall what's on the other side what can you create you know, um, and he taught me from a very, very young age to look at at structures differently. 
So he always used to say, look at what others aren't seeing. As a kid, you don't know what you're given, the, the, the talents that you're given. And in retrospect, I look at it and I think, gee, um, there was one little house that I built that, um, funny enough, many, 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 many years later, um, I drew it out and I actually built that house. <laughs> on the top <laughs> and that that was my that was my dream home <laughs> and I must have been probably about uh I, I was probably in my late 30s and I built that home in the top street up against that mountain overlooking the most magnificent view so and I had I had created that little house when I was a kid though growing up Daniel faced challenges that many of us couldn't imagine. Unfortunately, my eldest, my eldest two siblings died at a very young age, so they would have been probably in their 60s. Um, in fact, my oldest brother probably would have been about 63, 64. Um, so there was a seven-year gap between myself and him. Um, but, uh, you know, being brought up in South Africa, um, yeah. Uh, others wouldn't like me to say this, but I do believe that we were pretty much brought up in a war zone and uh, fatalities happened. I think uh, a very good friend of mine has um, encapsulated that very well by saying South Africa is beautiful chaos. <laughs> and it really is. I mean, it's the most beautiful country, like I said, rich with culture. The food is just magnificent, flavorsome, um, many, many different international cultures. Um, you know, so it, it really is beautiful, but it's total chaos. So I, I can remember some instances when I was growing up um, where there was, um, you know, we, we really, we were, we were brought up in the Cold War because what was happening is the leading party, which was the National Party, was really at war with the underground, which was the, um, the now residing ANC. Um, and I remember at... At some points, my, my parents wouldn't let us watch the news because there was so much bloodshed that was happening that they, they, they wanted to, you know, um, protect us from, from seeing all that stuff. So our childhood was kind of um, not really in the know of what was going on. However, at the age of 12 years old, I started realizing that there was something that I knew that I don't know and I wanted to know what it was. Um, so I started kind of looking and seeing and, and, and finding out information. It wasn't very easy to find out information at, uh, as a child about, you know, politics and what the other side was doing. After finishing high school, Daniel kept her valve and left Johannesburg at the age of 19. After traveling for one year, she settled down. I moved down to Cape Town. Cape Town is a beautiful city with lots of mountains, crystal clear waters, and that's basically where I started my life. You know, if you speak to any Cape Townians, they'll tell you that Cape Town's got soul. So it's a it's a very very colourful city. It's 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 uh, rich with culture. Um, um, it's got a lot of of um, uh, music, arts. Um, it's a beautiful city. It's a lovely place to be in. And, and you've got the seaside, you've got mountains, you've got all the outdoors, outdoor sports. And just down the road, um, about uh, 20 Ks, no, it's a little bit more than that, about 50 Ks down the road, you're surrounded by the vineyards. So um, 
and you've got the plains and you've got, you know, so it's, it, it really, it's a city that gives you everything from, um, you know, and especially if you're an outdoor person, if you enjoy your, your wines, your brandies, your, <laughs> your, <laughs> a couple of, uh, good adult, um, indulgences, um, Stunning, really beautiful. We used to go on, I used to go on, on uh, mountain bike rides in the vineyards, which was in through the mountains um, for like eight, nine hours a day. It was just magnificent. After Daniel moved to Cape Town, she saw what her parents tried to protect her from as a child. I got involved with, um, with groups that were fighting quietly fighting apartheid and my eyes were really open to the bloodshed and the war that was happening um you know so at any given time you never knew you know i mean um for instance uh, some friends of mine were uh, went to church and um some some uh, they call them appler attackers walked in and mowed everybody down in the church you know a couple of months later uh, a couple of friends were were well, uh, in, a, in a pub that I used to go to, same sort of thing happened. So there was a lot of this, you know, we kind of just lived with what was happening and you just dealt with it. And you lived with eyes in the back of the he your head. You're always looking behind you. Um, and and the level of, of security is just unbelievable. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit later about the security and, um, you know, the stuff that we were forced to live with. But... I think South Africans be became a very resilient nation um, because of of how we were living. You know, you 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 adapt to your circumstances, um, and we became very resourceful as a re as a result of that. You know, it almost becomes like a norm where you ex you you you. You never expect it, but when it does happen, it's like, um, oh, damn, it's happening again. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, there was um, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe was a cafe that we used to go to in, in, in uh, on the waterfront, beautiful place, and um, it was bombed. Now, um, and everybody says, gee, um, I could have been there, or wow, I, I've just left there. I just survived it. You know, and it's like, Lives have been lost, people have been killed, and nine times out of ten, we know a lot of those people that were in the line of fire. So whenever these attacks happened and we were always hearing about, um, oh, um, Joseph was shot in the um, James Street attack or, you know, so as a community, it kind of brought us together and, and, and made us um, I guess, um, looking after each other a little bit more, you know, where you're always looking out for your neighbor, you're always looking out, uh, like I said, looking over your shoulder and you never know when there's some sinister idiot that's just going to, you know, plant a bomb wherever you are. Coming up after the break, we'll dive into when Daniel started investing in property. I decided I needed to to basically put my own insurance in place. So I started buying properties. We'll hear about Daniel's best and worst investing moments. I guess the biggest lesson um, is, um, is, is not having the right education. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Story. 
Hey, let's be real. Deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with low risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. The events that happened in Cape Town heavily affected Daniel. This incredible level of, of fear and, um, and we, were, we were always trying to protect ourselves from that. Um, so, I mean, by the time I left South Africa, um, I'd been attacked four times. Um, I landed up in a wheelchair. My, um, both my, my, my feet were broken in, a, in, a, in an attack. Um, it took me three years to learn how to walk again, let alone run. Hence me, hence me um, being, uh, uh, enjoying cycling more than, than running. Um, However, that, that changed my life forever. I mean, I used to hike up that mountain virtually every second weekend. Um, I couldn't do that anymore. You know, it changed my life. Um, I've been held up at, at, at gunpoint, shot at <laughs> with AK-47s. Um, you know, and I think when I tell people these stories, they, they like think I'm, you know, making it up. Um, I, I ran factories and um, we had uh, seven gunmen that came in and held us up at gunpoint. You know, and another time um, I got a phone call, I went to pick up my kids that were all of um, a year and three years old and I was busy driving back to my factory to go and, and close up the factory and I got a phone call from uh, one of the staff members to say, Mish, don't come here, don't come, don't come. There's a, there's a shootout happening in the driveway. And it's like, gee, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> and this is life. You just get used to this. We got to a point where we had three security companies that were looking after us. So I had uh, security companies at, at the office, at work. Um, we had a security company who used to look after our homes. And often if we, um, for instance, if my, if my partner was, was who worked on the other side of the mountain was working late, um, I would tell her that she has to phone me when she's leaving and um, and I know that the drive was 20 minutes. If she's not back here by 20 minutes, I'd be phoning her again. Um, and often I would get the security company just to escort us into our home. You know, if we felt like there was, like there was something that uh, was out of the ordinary, we'd phone for an escort. You know, so and, – and that becomes the norm, you know, that um, – that's how it is. You're surrounded by, by armed guards. From a young age, Daniel was always driven and hardworking. As a kid, I, I always wanted to work. All I wanted to do was work. So um, I actually started working in a shoe, shoe store at the age of 12 years old. And <laughs> the, the legal age was 16, but uh, I managed to wing that one. 
um, <laughs> I was very convincing. Um, and in fact, I became their best salesperson. <laughs> and then I went on to doing all sorts of other casual jobs um, and, and, and continued with school, obviously. Um, however, I, I, I always wanted to pursue the creative side. And my, my, my now late sister was a, a professional photographer. Um, and she, um, she convinced me to go into advertising. So I started my first job um, as a graphic designer in advertising in an in a, um, agency called Young and Rubicam, um, which um, was retail advertising. So, and I learned my, my foundations. I basically did a, um, an apprenticeship with them for about uh, three years and then um, went on. However, while that was happening, um, I always thought there's got to be something bigger, there's got to be something better. Um, and when, I, when I, I left them, traveled, as I mentioned, came back, went to Cape Town, started, and then I was freelancing as a graphic designer and um, just decided that I need to settle down and, and, and do something bigger and better. So I started my own um, promotional clothing company. Now, you'd, you'd wonder how I'd jump from one to the other, but my mother was a, a dressmaker. And while my father was teaching me about construction and buildings, my mother was insisted that every single one of her girls learned how to, how to, how to make clothing. And we all had our own sewing machines. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it, but um, but in retrospect, it, it turned out really good for me. Um, and as a kid, what I used to do is I used to take menswear and pull it apart and restructure it, put it together and make it this, these creative clothing, <laughs> turn them into really creative outfits. <laughs> Predominantly men. So I used to do that in, in, in buildings and, and, and instruction as well as clothing. <laughs> anyway. Well, we didn't really have the money to, to go out and buy outfits for um, for end-of-year parties and that sort of thing, so I used to make it. Um, and when I moved uh, down to Cape Town, I got involved in promotional clothing because I had the clothing background and the promotional side was the creative side. Um, and it was very, very new. We were, we were one of, of three agencies. We were one of the first and uh, we did incredibly well. Um, so I just developed that into a, a, a very profitable business. And um, long story short, I en ended up with 400 staff and I was running three businesses. Um, I developed that. I took that into an embroidery business, a screen printing business, a manufacturing business, and we called it a vertical business, which means that we would design, we would um, manufacture, we would procure, so we'd whole stock, and we would do distribution. So it was end-to-end, -end. so an entire operation. In order for her promotional clothing business to become successful, Daniel tapped into a niche market. I realized that in order to make a business like that uh, highly profitable, um, I did contract work. So uh, we contracted to big corporate companies like uh, Caltex, uh, Caltex National. Now, bearing in mind that Caltex is very different in South Africa to what it is over here, the average Caltex um, service station would have anything between 40 to 120 staff members, and those staff members would have 22 garments, a full kit, full fit out of 22 garments, which would be summer as well as winter, which is jackets, trousers, shirts, jerseys, hats, caps, 
um, rain gear, summer gear. Um, so those were massive, massive contracts. I mean, we were manufacturing 22 million garments um, across various different styles. South Africa is a very labor, labor, intent, labor rich country. So because it's, um, it's, you know, you've got that, the, the great divide. Um, so the cheaper labor would do anything for work. So they would wash windows for work. They'll, they'll, so when you go to a service station in South Africa, everything's done for you. You pull up, somebody comes along, they pour petrol for you. They'll open your bonnet and they'll, they'll, They'll fill up your water. They'll check your oil. They'll check your tiles. They'll pump. They'll they'll pump your tires for you. Everything is done for you, you know, and they get paid for that. And then the other thing that they had is, they had um, retail shops at these service stations, and um, way ahead of of virtually other countries that I've seen around the world. So you could go to the retail shop and you could buy anything from, they'd have a Woolworths distribution in there. They'd have, a, so it's, it's a mini Woolworths. They'd have um, a bakery, um, uh, a pizza shop, a curry shop, you know, something like that. So they, you could go to your local service station and they were massive, huge service stations, um, which has subsequently started, I, I see um, Australia is getting more and more of those now. So it's, it's obviously working. Uh, where you can go and do a whole shop in, in when you're filling up for gas. Caltex was just one example of the brands that Daniel manufactured for. We used to manufacture under license to quite a lot of the sports brands as well. Uh, so I picked up the Adidas account. High intensive sort of um, uh, precision manufacturing um, and high pressure, very, very high pressure. I mean, at some stage, I think I was working probably 18 hours a day. I structured the companies in such a way that I had a lot of uh, managers in, you know, um, in the positions. So um, setting up all of those systems, every single, every single department uh, was very well managed. So effectively, I was helicopter managing um, all of those departments and, and, and just my, my core people. Um, but it is isn't a big undertaking, yes. Next, we take a look at Daniel's property investing journey and how it began. Just going back a little bit, at the age of 22, I realized that uh, South Africa was, was well and truly uh, on, a, on a slippery scale going downhill. Um, and I decided I needed to, to basically put my own insurance in place. So I started buying properties. It was something that I'd, I'd been very familiar with. So we had quite a, you know, I, I had a, a good portfolio of that happening on the side while I was in the manufacturing. And then things really started hitting the wall. Um, we had, we, um, we've, I've got two beautiful little blonde girls, gorgeous little girls. And I looked at my lifestyle and I looked at what I'd been through um, and I thought, you know, it's, it's unfair because I, I can't see things getting better um, for these kids to bring these kids up in that environment. So it really, really was a tough decision that, and I knew that I'd have to give everything up. And at that time, the money was worth nothing. The exchange rate was 10 to one, which means that um, every, every 10 rands that we owned was worth one dollar. So, either which way you, you look at it, we'd be we'd be losing. You know, it was a, a, a massive loss. Um, and then my factory was burnt down. 
um, and a year later I was I was attacked and I landed up in this wheelchair um, and then we were held up and, and it was almost like the universe was speaking to me and saying get out of here this is your time just get out of here just take whatever and I decided that's it I need to actually make this move and um, my sister had moved to Australia about 15 years earlier um, and decided that she wanted to get married so she invited me over to Australia to her wedding and I thought hell yes I'm going <laughs> well I used I used to come and come and go quite a lot in between but anyway and I was sitting in a park um, in Chermside and these two little kids came past pushing their bicycles they must have been all of 10 or 11 years old and I looked at this and I thought there is no ways that my kids are ever going to experience this kind of freedom ever in their lives. I'm moving here. And I phoned my wife back home and said, that's it. I'm not coming home until you say yes. Because I'd been saying for 10 years, I've been saying we need to move. We need to go. We need to actually go. Um, and everyone back home was saying, no, no, you're joking. You're not going to do this. And I said, I'm going to do this. That's it. I'm giving it up. I'm actually giving it up. I was 44 years old at the time, and um, I had just got my, my businesses, my life into a position where I could retire. So I was kind of getting everything ready for a really relaxed um, future, <laughs> doing, just doing what, whatever I wanted to do. And I made the decision to um, give it all up. And uh, long story short, we arrived here when I was 45 years old with three suitcases. We couldn't get our money out of South Africa for six years. So we really, really battled to get our money out um, with uh, the way that things were going. And um, I just decided, you know what, I, I, I will give away everything that I owned because there's one thing that that the governments can't take from me and that's what I've brought with me and that is my intelligence, my experience, what I've learned, you know, um, years of experience and that's basically what I brought, you know, and that's, and that's how we've started doing what we're doing now. We'll continue to explore Mish Daniel's journey in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll talk about her strategy. Look, I think the most the most successful strategy right throughout my entire um, real estate career uh, across the across the the big blue lake has always <laughs> has always been uplift. The mentors that helped her achieve success. Look, I think my 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 biggest mentor was probably my father. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now. And I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, 
text me your name and email address on 0499 88 10 40.